This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. As of this recording, we do not yet know the winner of the race for president, whether it'll be Joe Biden or Donald Trump. We're recording this the day after Election Day, and several states are too close to call and still counting votes. But we have a pretty good idea of how Virginia voted going into the 2020 presidential election and U.S. congressional elections. A lot of us here in Virginia were asking if Democrats' statewide winning streak would strengthen. Four years ago, Hillary Clinton beat Trump in Virginia by five points. When all is said and done, it looks like Joe Biden is going to beat Trump by about nine points, maybe more. So what's that say about politics in Virginia? We've got a great show lined up for today, and it's a joint episode with Charlottesville Soundboard. So I'm going to introduce the host and producer of that show, Mary Garner McGee. Hey, Mary Garner. Hey, Nathan. This is my first Bold Dominion appearance. I know. I'm so excited. Yeah. Uh, And my first Soundboard in a long time. Yeah. What's your one-sentence takeaway from the election in Virginia? This is not the sexiest post-election story, but um, I think Virginia was really on the forefront of making voting safe and accessible during this pandemic. Um, This is going into sentence number two, but we had 45 days of early in-person voting, um, and hopefully that means that we don't see too many election-related COVID cases. Cool. Well, we're also joined by Arian Balu. Uh, he is the producer of Bold Dominion. Arian, thanks for being our guest this time on uh, the other side of the microphone. Uh, it's always fun. The last time I did it, I cut myself out for sounding like a fool. <laughs> well, um, what's your 10-second takeaway from the election in Virginia? Uh, I started this thing and I was going to say, you know, I wish it were a little more interesting, but seeing how things are going in the more interesting states, I'm glad things are safe and relatively uncontroversial here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take that as a, as a go. Um, so today, I guess we're just going to start with the election night results, right? Um, and the polling uh, going into it. You know, the, the, the popular sites, you know, Politico and 538 and 270 to win, all these sites put Biden as like a really, really odds-on favorite, you know, like, like nine, 91, 92% chance of winning with really comfortable margins in a lot of states. Turns out a lot of those states don't have as comfortable margins in reality as we thought. Um, I mean, what do we know about why the polls seemed kind of off this time around? I mean, the thing that I've seen co- going around a lot, which I think, you know, rings rings true to the voices that I hear on the podcast that I listen to and what I've been reading in the newspapers and stuff is that really representation in journalism and in media has a really long way to go. And um, if your newsrooms don't reflect the communities that you're reporting on, your polls and your stories going into Election Day might not be as accurate as they could be. And I mean, in fairness, if there was ever going to be a year where where the polls missed something, 2020 makes a lot of sense for that. I mean, 2016, uh, things were messed up. Mainly, I think they identified uh, it was undercounting those who were uh, non-college educated white voters. They said they corrected for that, but who knows what other kind of factors kind of went into making the misses that we had this year. I was not a polls truther. Uh, but now I don't know if I can ever look at polls the same way. (laughs) Um, Let's zoom in on Virginia a little bit here, uh, where we did see Biden beat Trump pretty handily, not quite the 11 or 12 points that was predicted, but still about nine, maybe nine and a half. Um, Virginia counties and regions across the state did change their vote some. We saw up in Northern Virginia, Central Virginia, the counties around Richmond and Charlottesville, all the way out to Stanton, actually went even more blue this year. Uh, meanwhile, the counties in southwest Virginia, parts of Southside Virginia, actually went even more for Trump than they did in 2016. Uh, what's the story here? I have a real theory about this, um, and I think part of it is that, 
you know, as housing prices in places like Charlottesville and Richmond go up so rapidly, it's really pushing a lot of people into now suburbanizing areas that used to be a lot more rural. Um, and and I think a lot about, I talk about Fluvanna County all the time. I grew up in Fluvanna County. And Cameron Webb, Dr. Cameron Webb, who was running as a Democrat in the 5th District, won very narrowly Fluvanna County in this race this year. And, you know, that's a place it's about halfway between Richmond and Charlottesville, where that's been growing a lot that a lot of people move to if they can't afford to live in Charlottesville. Um, and so I think that one side effect of rising housing prices in places like Charlottesville and Richmond is that it's turning the places around them more blue as people who want to live in those urban areas um, can't afford to. And so they move farther out and change the communities that they move into. One thing, so, I mean, on the face of it, I'll say this much, right? Uh, this was as policy-free an election as I think we can get. It was really, you know, uh, Trump's whatever personality-driven everything versus the soul-of-the-nation message from Joe Biden. And the people who care a lot about the aesthetics, the norms, um, all of those aspects of politics are the people who are firm, like, they've all gone to Biden. People who don't care so much about that kind of thing. Um, I don't think any either of those is... Uh, inherently better than the other, but they have to be convinced by something. And I don't think there was enough of a message from the Biden campaign to affirmatively convince a lot of the people who were on the fence or voted for Trump to move over to their side. It was definitely a, Biden was a safer choice. I mean, it certainly wasn't a Bernie race, right? I mean, that didn't stop the Trump campaign from trying to call Biden a socialist. Same playbook they would have done against Bernie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's laughable, really. But, but yeah, Biden was... I mean, what is he for is, you know, some technocratic solutions to, to social problems and really more than anything, just a return to normal, whatever that means, um, versus Trump is just, you know, hey, help me throw some more bricks through windows. This is a, a hypothetical question and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's too much, but um, if the Democratic Party actually embraced, you know, economic progressivism in a, in a serious way for a couple, three election cycles, would you start to see more support in rural areas? Because that that rural urban divide is a real deal, and and I think the the resentment that that a lot of rural people see toward city people, or rather have toward city people, is is a real deal. Um, you know, they see the wealth concentrated there. They see you know things that that they don't identify with, and you know, they like their little towns, but um, and they like their lifestyle there. But you know, I think there's a pretty real perception that that a lot of the decisions that get made are in the cities, and they're not to the benefit of rural places. Um, what would it take to to change that? Um, I mean, I think I think it would work, right? I think that uh, people fundamentally will vote for. This is a again hypothetical, abstract. People fundamentally vote for the person who they think will be in their best interest, and you know, economic progressivism doesn't. I, I don't think it's a left right issue. Um, as much as sort of a, a it, it's good for everybody, right? Uh, working class. Uh, solidarity and, and message. So I think you'd see a lot of that. The The counterpoint is obviously then you have the, the economic side uh, versus where Democrats and Republicans currently have clearly divided themselves, which is uh, the culture aspect of things. You know, where do you stand on Roe v. Wade? Where do you stand on guns? That's, that's where you're probably going to get people who, you know, m might vote against their economic interests in favor of their cultural interest. I think personally that you know, if you give people a clear, unambiguous, this will be good for you economically, they'll be willing to overlook cultural issues that they have with the other party. 
Arian, it's funny to hear you say that it doesn't even feel like a left-right issue because I feel like economic issues are the only left-right issue. Everything else is kind of, you know, different flavors of it. I, th- I think maybe maybe when I say left-right, uh, Democrat-Republican is different from left-right. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. That's, that's what I mean more so is the difference between parties. Um, you know, both parties, the establishment agree uh, typically on policies that work against, you know, economic progressivism, the working class. Right. That's where they agree and where they have their disagreements is the culture side, which I think is important, but less important. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll give a give props to intersectionality, of course, and the need to, to uh, look at how race and, and gender and sexual uh, rather LGBT status all intersect with class in, in really important ways. But, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people meeting their basic needs and, and then some and thriving does seem like a really key thing that neither party is actually doing much of right now. So. The roots of the American Civil Rights Movement are incredibly connected to socialism in the South. In Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia in the 1920s, the first people to become involved with what would be the American Civil Rights Movement were socialists. And by socialist, I mean what we would think of today as democratic socialists, um, in that they believed in democracy, they believed in representation, and they believed in economic justice. They believed in economic equality, economic opportunity. You know, if you read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in high school or college, um, that was the brand of American socialism that they were associated with. You know, they were living in the Jim Crow South, and economic justice was the goal. In addition to racial equality, obviously, but um, and that's a part of the narrative of the civil rights movement that we've really erased, um, despite the fact that, you know, when when Martin Luther King was assassinated, he was working on the the poor people's movement. You know, he was organizing sanitation workers and we've never seen in the 20th century in the United States. I don't think before either, but we'll say 20th century cross racial class solidarity and in the 1920s there was like this critical point right where poor white farmers in the south white sharecroppers had the opportunity to join up with their black neighbors and fight for economic justice in the south and instead you know white politicians and plantation owners and like you know rich people rich white people in the south like pitted those two groups further against each other and what we saw over the course of the 20th century was that like poor white people comprise some of the most violent opposition to the to the civil rights movement because if you don't have economic prosperity like at the end of the day the theory goes like whiteness pays right and so um you know there are already a lot of progressives in rural areas and there's also a long history of you know government support in rural areas like a lot of farmers got a lot of um a lot of white farmers in particular got a lot of government support um during the new deal and you know i had cousins who worked for the ccc and the agricultural adjustment agency my grandfather worked for the agricultural adjustment agency like all of these were new deal programs um, to this day, my parents' internet and electricity comes from a co-op. Like, those are progressive things. Um, but also, you know, a couple years ago at Thanksgiving, um, 
I have a bunch of cousins who work at the Walmart Distribution Center in Fluvanna County, and they couldn't come to Thanksgiving dinner because that's like the busiest day of the year um, at Walmart. So I was talking to some of their parents, and they were like, oh my gosh, like the way that Walmart treats the employees is so terrible. Like, you know, they'll change their schedule on them at the last minute, and like, we don't have internet, so I'll drive all the way to the Walmart in Louisa only to find out that my schedule's been changed, and they make them work on the holidays, stuff like that. And then at the end of the conversation, they were like, man, if only the owners of Walmart like knew about this, then I'm sure they would fix it. Like they seem like decent people. Like if only they knew about it. So I think that there's like a really, really deeply rooted like sense of individualism and like trust in capitalism and like corporate institutions at the same time that there is like a long-seated dependence on like government intervention and some government intervention is like seen as an entitlement like support for crops but then like other stuff can easily be pitted as like overreach and I think in a lot of rural communities too like that are suburbanizing, you know, places like Nelson and Fluvanna County and Louisa and like around here. Um, I mean, there's a huge cultural divide between people whose families have been there for many, many generations and people who are moving in recently. Huge. Mm -hmm. Side by side, uh, different different uh, populations almost. Yeah. I want to turn things back a little bit to uh, Virginia's congressional races. Um, including the 5th District uh, of the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, this race was, was interesting on its own terms because the incumbent, Denver Riggleman, was kicked to the curb by his own party. The Republican Party held a caucus this year and uh, largely seems to have rejected Riggleman for the frankly ridiculous reason that he officiated a same-sex wedding of one of his staffers. Bigfoot erotica is cool, but gay marriage is not. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know what's funny? Uh, like, so Denver Riggleman, I, I've uh, been in in like large group gatherings with with him once or twice. He's an affable guy, and and I'll tell you though, honestly, the Bigfoot erotica thing was sort of one of the more endearing things I found about him. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm not personally into that. For anybody listening, um, but yeah, so the Republicans kicked him to the curb. That meant that the race was between uh, former Liberty University wrestling coach Bob Good as the Republican and uh, UVA doctor and health policy wonk Cameron Webb as the Democrat. Uh, Bob Good won by five and a half points. So now there's a hardline, self-described biblical conservative going to Washington from the 5th District. Um, there's two things I want to talk about this, guys. Uh, one is that, that it's a pretty similar vote turnout to 2018 when Democrat Leslie Coburn lost. She lost to uh, Denver Riggleman by about six and a half points. Uh, this year, Dr. Webb lost by five and a half points. So the needle moved a little bit, but really not that much, even with a strong Democratic candidate and frankly, not a, a real great or inclusive Republican one. Um, why did the needle not move much? All right, I have two theories on this one. This is where I had some fun um, looking at the uh, elections.virginia.gov results that they put up on their website um, for this year, and then also the Charlottesville Voter Registrar Office on their like main voting page has voter turnout statistics going back to 1975. 
So one of my theories is that, um, you know, turnout is already pretty good in Charlottesville and Albemarle. Um, Like you said, in 2018, when Coburn ran, 67 percent of active registered voters turned out. In 2016, it was 77 percent. We don't have numbers back for this year, but um, those numbers are significantly higher than national averages. And um, really, the Charlottesville-Albemarle area is like the Democrat voting area in the 5th District. Um, So you're definitely trying to turn out some voters in, in other places. I mean, like I said, this year, Fluvanna County went for Webb. I think the first time a Democrat has won any countywide election in Fluvanna County under the label of a Democrat during my lifetime. But there's, you know, only so many Democratic voters in Charlottesville and Albemarle, and almost all of them are already voting. So there's not a whole lot of headroom there, I think, is, is one reason why. Um, and it's a gerrymandered district. So um, so that's one reason. Um, and then this one um, is a guess, definitely. Um, and it's hard to know where people stand ideologically from a binary vote for Bob Good or for Cameron Webb. But I looked at the percentages in all 23 counties in the 5th District, and only three of them had less than a 10-point spread. So that means in the other 20 counties, either Webb or Good won by more than 10 points. So we had only three counties where it was even close. And so that kind of makes me think that, you know, that you've got two pretty entrenched groups of voters who know what kind of candidates they're looking for, in many cases probably vote for the same party every two years when this comes up. And the differences year to year from a strong candidate and a weak candidate, um, you know, maybe don't affect people's decisions all that much um, when you combine the fact that the Democratic area already has really strong turnout. um, And also it, it seems to be a pretty polarized district. I would say even polarized is one word, but it's also gerrymandered like all hell, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the uh, as Charlotte Woods from uh, Charlottesville Tomorrow always puts it. That's the dragon rising out of North Carolina in the room here. The dragon in the room. (laughs) So instead of gerrymander, this will be the Jerry dragon. Uh, Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, I mean. This district is the size of New Jersey, right? Uh, and it stretches from the, the North Carolina border all the way up to the D.C. exurbs, uh, you know, Warrington area. I mean, there is very, very little culturally similar between, you know, like South Boston and the D.C. suburbs. Um, they're both within the state boundaries. But that's about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think really you, you look at this district and it's very blatantly and obviously has been designed for, for a comfortable Republican majority. Hey, that's a good segue, though. The constitutional amendment passed. Uh, There was a constitutional amendment on the ballot this year, uh, actually passed by about a two-to-one margin, and it would change the way we decide where the district lines go. So historically, the way each legislative district is drawn in Virginia is that the General Assembly draws up the maps and approves them. It's based on census data that comes in every 10 years. So whichever party is in charge gets an enormous say in how the lines are drawn. Both parties have practiced gerrymandering over the 20th, 21st centuries. Um, that's where they pack lots of votes from the opposing party into just a few districts and then leave their own districts with nice, comfortable 6, 7, 10 point margins, essentially drawing the district lines to pick the voters they want so they'll stay in power. Um, and I think that's really how you end up with District 5, which you know has that absurd shape like a dragon rising from North Carolina. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's built to create a Republican victory. 
Uh, I think that gerrymandering is how you end up also with this fun fact. Virginia last elected a Republican to statewide office in 2009, but until 2019, two-thirds of our congressional delegation was Republicans. For a long time, it was uh, uh, seven Republicans and four Democrats in the in the delegation to the U.S. Congress. Uh, and then in 2018, the election of Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria, and um, the Northern Virginia District. Uh, Jennifer Wexton. Yes, Jennifer Wexton. Thank you. And Jennifer Wexton up in Northern Virginia, um, you know, basically flipped it from seven to four to four to seven. So. Uh, so now there's going to be a bipartisan redistricting commission. Uh, Peter Galaska actually had a quick a little comment about that. The not so great news about the the new amendment is first off, there's no guarantee that minorities are going to be in, in any of the committees at all. None. And you got eight coming from the General Assembly and eight from you know citizens. There's still a great deal of um, indirect General Assembly control over who gets picked. And so that's going to be a problem because, I mean, you know, Virginia legislatures are, are very good at playing games. So, you know, <clears throat> you can only hope that that it's it's better. It's like, as I think we talked about once, it's a, a half a loaf is better than no loaf. And that's about where we are. <laughs> I know a lot of people were so upset about the amendment and the way the controls are and the way it was written that they really wanted it gone. So what do y'all think? Is the uh, new congressional amendment, the new way we draw lines, is it going to make the difference? This was one of the most mind, like, mind-boggling issues on, on the... Absolutely, the, the, the most complex issue on the ballot, I think, this year. I, I did an interview with Brent Tarter, who wrote, literally wrote the book on gerrymandering. He said he was voting yes. Um, and right up until I walked into the ballot box, my brother and I were debating this, and I flip-flopping. Um, because it's 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 really hard, right? Because this would have been the year, this is the year that redistricting reform would do something because the lines are getting drawn next year. The question of whether this proposed committee has teeth, I don't think it does. I mean, you could see this from the way that uh, the Democrats in line uh, who were kind of handing out sample ballots were saying vote no. The Republicans are very much saying vote yes. Uh, but even that is a little complex because I know Sally Hudson, uh, who we've had on the show, uh, Democrat progressive, she probably voted yes for the amendment. So it's it's tricky. I, I'm i not a huge fan of it passing, I'll say personally, um, just because I think there's the potential that the districts are going to be, it's going to go to the Virginia Supreme Court anyway. I think one of the biggest um, like theoretical conversations happening um, on the left right now is do we ask for the ideal or do we get what we can as we go, you know? Um, but I think that this amendment is a really good example of that. Where like, it's a step towards having a less partisan way of drawing the boundaries, but it's not the commission that the people who are really against gerrymandering would want. So overall takeaways, the uh, November 3rd elections have taken place. Results are still, uh, but uh, Virginia's count is pretty well uh, almost done. Um, what's what's the say? What do we know? Um, yeah, I think one thing that's, that's been really interesting to watch under the first four years of the Trump administration is how states like Virginia have um, been a testing ground for policies that, you know, weren't able to go through at the, the national level. So, you know, I hope that however things go down, that, um, you know, Virginia continues to try new, exciting, bold ideas at the local and at the state level. So that's my 
a spot of hope <laughs> in the mm-hmm. so if virginia is really blue nowadays what what kind of blue are we going to be what's it going to look like in the future i think it's fair to say that um you know virginia is a is a is a tempered blue um charlotte calls it indigo um so it's it's blue with um some some bright red pockets and then also um you know if you look at the primary results um the democratic primary results virginia went pretty strongly for biden um not a lot of support for more progressive candidates so um even though virginia is like now widely considered to be pretty solidly democratic um I think it's a long way from becoming a progressive state. And I think that we've seen that in the policies enacted by the Democratic leaders, you know. Um, So up in D.C., you know, just a little bit to the north of Virginia, they have a $15 an hour minimum wage now. And here in Virginia, when we decided to um, to raise our minimum wage, uh, we're doing it pretty slowly, um, a few cents every year. Um, until we get up to a higher level. And I think that that's just a good example of, you know, the difference between, um, you know, a solidly blue state like New York or California and a solidly blue state like Virginia. Ariane, I know you uh, were, uh, had noticed some, some polling of people and how it sort of tends to differ from the priorities of, of... Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I could talk about this for days. Uh, last night, election night, Fox News put out a poll... Um, Fox News, mind you, put out a poll that, that showed kind of the priorities nationwide of uh, a lot of Americans. And there was over 70% of, of respondents uh, were in favor of uh, government health care, more money being spent on green energy, and a path to citizenship for uh, undocumented immigrants. All of these positions are super popular nationwide. But the election that we just had is easily the most substance-free one we've had in certainly as long as I can remember, which, to be fair, is not very long. And so it just strikes me as, as the, 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 the lane is wide open for somebody to take any of these policies, especially maybe healthcare during a global pandemic, and just running away with a majority of people who need help and would like someone to listen to their needs. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, Ari, you and I have talked about this off off line a little bit um it's the kind of thing that that today's gop doesn't really seem equipped to do you know the idea of the government being involved in programs that help people uh, on a wide scale you know the, the the rich people that run it are not into that and meanwhile the the democratic party sort of had those roots but it's been a generation since they really made that the front and center part of their priority so where does it come from you know, I mean, I think a you know, third party history in, in the United States over the last 50, 100 years has been a story of, you know, uh, well, mostly failure, to be honest. Um, so, you know, how do you build the coalitions within one of those two parties to make it work? Yeah, I mean, they thought people thought that's what Donald Trump would do in 2016. He had some of the, the rhetoric of somebody who was, you know, looking out for working class people and those kinds of economic messages. He has since governed either incompetently or as a straightforward Republican, which, I mean... So if the lane's wide open, I guess, uh, see if the, the Democratic leadership will, will come on board, huh? Pass the torch to new leaders? I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Mary Garner and Arian, thank you so much for uh, our little chat fest today about uh, the, the elections nationwide and also here in Virginia. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been super fun. And Arian, now you got to go edit this. Yeah. 
That's less fun. <laughs> Mary Garner McGee coordinates digital audio projects at WTJU, and she's the host and producer of Soundboard. You can find it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all over the place. Aryan Balu is the producer of Bold Dominion. Uh, thanks also to some journalists we heard from today, Charlotte Woods from Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Peter Galaska, who spoke with us via Skype. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. You can find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Uh, keep washing your hands and wearing masks, and I'll talk with you again in two weeks. <laughs>